verse 22, uh, again, let me say, I spent quite a bit of time talking about who Paul addresses here. And it is really important to understand that context and the mindset of those who would read this and those who would hear it today, because typically uh, Protestants pick out three or four verses in Romans and three or four verses in Galatians, maybe, maybe six or eight verses, and uh, build their doctrine about grace only from that without considering the entire context of what Paul is trying to explain to them. On the one hand, you had the Gentiles at Rome who had come out of the world, and they knew nothing about true religion basically whatsoever. They'd been worshiping Zeus and Diana and Atlas and uh, no telling who all else, ultimately Satan, is whom they had been worshiping. Then you had the Jews who thought they were righteous and looked to the Father only, not to Christ Himself. And they had the law of God and thought that they were totally righteous. Now, bear in mind that clearly the Gentiles were worshiping Satan. But remember what Christ had told the Pharisees. You have your father, the devil. So he said, both sides of this that he's talking to here had been worshiping Satan. The Jews didn't know it, and the Gentiles didn't know it. They thought Zeus and Diana and all these false demons and Satan uh, were God, or were gods. And the Jews, not realizing it, were following Satan, and he had become their God. Just like the whole world today worships the devil. Now, we hear about uh, these Satanists in high in our government and other places who are out and out, obviously and admittedly, Satan worshipers, Luciferians, Illuminati, uh, thinking that Satan is the one that has the light. So, we have those, but the whole world is concluded in sin, and Satan has deceived the whole world about who God is. So, they worship the God of this world, as the Bible clearly shows. And he told the Jews, again, you worship, you know not what. <laughs> you don't think you're worshiping the devil, but he said, I'm telling you, you are. Now, here you have a people who think they're worshiping God in Judaism, and they're actually worshiping Satan, the devil, unwittingly and unknowingly. He made it very clear, but they didn't buy it. Okay? So here Paul is writing to an audience that has all been worshiping the devil, whether they knew it or not. And he's trying to explain what true worship is all about. And that's why he approached it saying it's not a matter of race. We went through that and spent quite a little time on it has nothing to do with what kind of blood flows through your veins. Then he showed that it is the creation of God that shows who He is 
if you really want to find out who God is, he said, look at the creation and see what he has made, and then you can have respect and honor that is view him because of the incredible creation that is around us. Then he said, men have exchanged the knowledge of God and what he created. He made male and female to be a family, to be a marriage, and to have children that depict the family of God that is to be. And they've exchanged that truth for the lie that it's okay for men to be with men and women to be with women, and we just had somebody want a gubernatorial runoff that's called transgender. One of the top politicians in that state, I think it was Wisconsin. If not, there will be one there, so it's somewhere up there. So he's trying to explain. We need to find true religion here. Both people, Jew or Gentile, in the audience at Rome. So now he's going on after he said what it's not and where to find God, because people have this thing about God that he's a vapor, a cloud, a murky idea, a beatific vision, if you want to put it in Catholic terms, and you can't quite see through the clouds. There were some clouds up last night. And I was trying to find certain uh, formations of stars. And the clouds weren't real thick, but they were a little bit murky. So it was hard to identify which stars I was looking at. And that's basically what the beatific vision of the Catholic Church is. And the more your relatives pay alms and whatever terms they use for something, um, I can't think of the word, uh, into the church, then your dead relative gets a better view of God. That's what it amounts to. Clearer picture. So, he said, look, it's not by race. You understand the Creator by looking at the creation. Don't worship the creation. Call it Gaia, Mother Earth, if you want. Don't worship that. Worship the God who was able to make that. Understand Him through the things that he made. So that's the very basics. It wasn't an argument about doctrine, was it? It wasn't an argument about the exact form of God, as some people will argue mindlessly and on and on about what form God has. No, it was a very basic thing. If you really want to start from scratch and understand God, Look at a squirrel chasing nuts in a tree. There's your starting point, or any other thing out there. And you begin to understand. I look at a house, and it says, built by so-and-so. Then I have an idea of what those people do. That house did not appear on its own. It had to have somebody with a blueprint who followed it and built it. And I can look at a house and say, well, there's a house that was built by a fast buck cheap contractor who wanted to make the cheapest thing he could build that would actually stand up for 20 years uh, and make some money and run. And then I can look at another one and say, wow, there's somebody that really cared about what they were doing. 
So I can know what kind of person or company is involved just by looking at their work. You can do that out here on the highway. Some paving companies are better than others. Some roads you go like this. Others are fairly smooth. So you look up the names and you figure, that's not the one I want to build this road. Or that is the one I want. So he's saying, there is a being there. And if you're going to begin to understand, Jew or Gentile, what he really is, look at what he's done. So he's getting them involved in a very basic concept. Now the Jews, of course, thought they were way beyond this. Okay? Oh, we have Abraham, we have Moses, we have the Father in heaven. What do you mean? Look at creation. We don't, we don't really need that. Well, Paul thought they did. Because they didn't know who God was. They thought they did, but they had no clue. So then he says, you can't live the way people tend to live. Look at the world today and how do people tend to live? What does God look down on from His throne in the sides of the north? Lying, cheating, murdering, adultery, maliciousness, malignity, fraud of every kind, backbiters, haters of God, all the stuff that He mentions here in the last verses of chapter 1. Because that's what mind man has. Deceitful, desperately wicked, who can know it? And he said it would get worse here at the end, just like it was before the flood came, where it's total violence, total godlessness. And that's where these people had been. The Jews were not godly, and Christ told them so. The Gentiles were not godly, and they should have known that, because they were worshiping all kinds of gods. So he's getting down to the basics here. And it is with that that we need to look at what Paul is saying in context. He's talking in chapter 2 about uh, seeking glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, and how not the hearers are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now, a question then comes up with the Jews. Are you justified, or for the Jews, are you justified by keeping the law? We're going to explore that here in a little bit and come up with an answer for it. That's in verse 13 of chapter 2. And then he says God's going to reveal the secret someday and make his judgments in verse 16. And then he talks to the Jews and says, Oh, you think you know it all and you're instructing the blind and, and so on. And he says, Well, what about you? Do you keep the law? You who teach it, do you keep it? And then he says, your circumcision means nothing. Then we get down to chapter 3, and he starts climbing on the Jews here. And he has an answer for both Jew and Gentile. Because even though he's going to address the Jews specifically, he wants the Gentiles that are there also to understand what the Jew is all about. Because the Jew in the audience had grown up believing he was better than those Gentiles in the audience. And the Gentiles in the audience had been called dogs by the Jews. So there was a problem here that needed fixed. 
So, we pose the question, or Paul did in chapter 3, what advantage does the Jew have? And, well, chiefly, they had the Word of God. But then he goes on to explain that that didn't do them any good because they didn't keep it. And they had substituted a false god for the true God. And he said in verse 12, they are all gone out of the way and become unprofitable, and there's none that does good, no, not one. That's pretty much what Christ said of all the Pharisees, wasn't it? He didn't just kick a few of them out. He says, I'm disfellowshipping the whole bunch of you until you accept the ministry that I have established through the apostles. And how was that church established through the apostles? With Christ, Jesus, as the chief cornerstone. Now, they've rejected and did reject then the chief cornerstone and killed him. And Judaism has rejected the chief cornerstone ever since. And the ministry that he left behind to build the rest of the temple. They still reject it. A few Messianics now do accept the Jesus that they understand, but they don't understand that that Jesus is Satan. <laughs> He's the wrong Savior. Uh, so the Messianic Jews haven't really improved anything over Judaism itself because they still don't keep the law. They still keep Sunday. They still follow Protestantism, basically. And the Protestants worship Satan the devil, not knowing it, just like the Jews had. So he says they're all out of order, all gone out of the way and become unprofitable. Well, if you're going to be a follower of God and a Christian, you need to become a profitable one. Because if you're unprofitable, what good thing are you going to receive from God? Eternal life? No. Not if he finds you unprofitable. So then he goes on down and he describes how bad they are in verses 13 through 18. And let's pick it up there and go quickly back through these next few verses down to where we stopped in verse 22. Verse 18, he says, Now we know that what things whatsoever the law says, it says to them who are under the law. I mean, you're under traffic laws, aren't you? Uh, if you fly all the time and you don't drive a car, then you're not under the traffic laws. They don't apply to you, and you have no penalty for breaking them because you don't drive a car. But if you do drive a car, you are under the... Uh, you're compelled to keep the law, and if you don't keep it, you get a ticket. So you're under the penalty of that law if you break it, and they catch you at it. Now, that's why, one reason, that I never get irate or upset if I get stopped by a traffic cop. The reason he stopped me, most likely, is that I was doing something I should not have been doing. So why should I get upset at him for stopping me? That's his job. And if I broke the law, then I should pay the penalty of that law, whatever the fine might be, because I deserved it. I broke the law. Whatever the law says, it says to them who are responsible for following it. 
that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. God's law applies to Jew and Gentile. It applies to every human being who breathes on this earth. And when Christ returns, all those who had the Old Covenant will be judged by the Old Covenant. Those of us who have been given the New Covenant will be judged by the New Covenant. But the world, for the most part, has not made a covenant with God. So they're outside the law. But they are still responsible to one degree or another to find out what is important. And most of the world could care less. So, everybody's broken it. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What does the law do? It defines what sin is. Sin is the transgression of the law, First John 3, 4. So, without law, you don't know what sin is. If there's no speed limit, you don't know... There's no standard. You can choose what speed you want. When there was no speed limit in Montana, I could drive 40 or I could drive 110, and nobody cared. Because there was no law that defined for me what the limit was. So it didn't matter, and there was no penalty. I could be doing 110 miles an hour and meet a cop coming on, on the freeway and wave at him because I was not under the penalty of the law. I was not responsible. So it's the laws of God that give us a knowledge of sin. And it's not just the statutes, the commandments. There are natural laws. If you break them, they break you. Gravity is a prime example. It's always there, isn't it? If you're on the earth, it is. And if you stumble and fall or jump off a cliff, you will pay the penalty very rapidly because it is a law. And even the Gentiles understand those basic laws of God, don't they? Just because they don't understand the coded Word of God, does that mean they just jump off cliffs with impunity? No. There wouldn't be many of them left if they did. You die when you do stuff like that. <clears throat> so he says, now I have not just gravity, but I have these laws to govern human activity to live by that will produce a happy, well-adjusted human being if they will follow them. Now, if you break them, you're going to have problems. And he says, even the Gentiles understand some of these laws without ever having read them. Because they know there's certain things if you do in your society, it's going to destroy your society. Murder, adultery, those destroy relationships. So God said, even they understand this to some degree. Now, I've given you a whole list of things that if you will follow these and not do this and not do that, but will do this, then things will go better in your life and in your society. 
<clears throat> now, that's the knowledge of sin. The law tells you what you can and cannot do. And breaking it is a sin, and the wages of sin is death. <coughs> so it's not as immediate, perhaps, as gravity, but it's still inexorable. Because you are going to someday be judged by that law. <clears throat> and you will found, if you're found wanting, then you have to die. It's that simple. It's a delayed death but a death nonetheless. Now, when Adam, when God told Adam and Eve, if you eat that, you shall surely die, they didn't die the moment they ate it, but it was inexorable. And it came, and they died, instead of having eternal life in a beautiful garden. So, he mentions the law, and he says, the righteousness of God, in verse 21 is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he says, I gave the law to Moses, and then the prophets repeated it, and told you you weren't keeping it, and you stoned them. So you have a problem. You have witnesses, the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ or Emmanuel, Unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Now, he's writing to, again, an audience who had rejected Christ, or one who had not known him at all. So he's saying, here's the basis of righteousness. It's Christ Emmanuel. And if you don't accept him, you have nothing because righteousness is necessary to enter into the kingdom of God, as we know from other scriptures. So he's laying the basis for true Christianity, righteousness, and an opportunity to be in the kingdom of God through Christ. It is by that name only that we may be saved. That individual. He has many names, but it is that same individual. Then he says, verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here's the bottom line. Sin has condemned you. Whether it was one sin or a thousand sins, the penalty of sin is death. Well, that's, uh, I think that's chapter 6, verse 23 that says that. Oh, I'm in 7, no wonder. Verse 23 of chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Emmanuel the Christ our Lord. So he's saying sin will kill you, but a gift from God can save you. Keep that point in mind as we go on here. So he said everybody sinned and come short, and then we read three chapters later that uh, that's going to kill you if something isn't done about it. So go on from there in verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, or Emmanuel. 
And we've all sinned, so we're all going to die. Okay, that's bottom line where we are as human beings around the world. And there's only one way out of that, and that's through Christ Himself. He is the only door to salvation. If you don't come through Him, you don't get there. He's the light in the way. And He even said that very plainly, did He not? If you don't come through me, you don't get there. The only name by which we might be saved. Baal, Zeus, Atlas, Satan. No other name. <clears throat> and we have to be redeemed through Him, He says. Justified freely by His pardon, His grace, His unlimited pardon. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So, Christ is listed as our mediator, is He not? Between us and the Father. And it is through Him that we have an approach to God. Remember the veil of the temple physically in the ancient times separated the Holy of Holies from everyone except the high priest once a year. And when Christ died, the veil of that tabernacle was ripped in two, giving access to the Holy of Holies to God the Father. Unlimited access. Through whom? Through Christ only. Because it was His death that opened that opportunity to go to the Father. Now, the Jews had always looked to the Father and to Abraham and Moses, but they literally did not have access to the Father in the Old Testament all the way through, did they? No. They had only the physical Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And they had no access to that except through Aaron, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement. It's the only access Israel had to the Father in Heaven. Now, they did have access to Christ as Melchizedek if they called upon Him. But by and large, hardly anyone did. Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, name a few. And it was he who came to them and gave them their prophetic messages. It wasn't the Father. Because there was no access to him. Period. Until that veil of the temple was rent in twain when Christ died and we all gained access. Now Christ told us at that point, did he not, when he gave a sample prayer, pray like this, Our Father in heaven. You pray now to the Father. You have access to Him now, which no one had until that point. And you have to do it through Christ, because He is the door and the way to the Father. His death opened that door. Now we pray in Christ's name. In every prayer we pray, we close in the name of the Christ, Jesus, if you want, or Emmanuel, 
because it is through Him that that prayer gets to the Father. Without Christ, you still can't pray to the Father. The Jews cannot pray to the Father and get through because they do not accept Christ. He is the only way you can get to the Father. Do they still think they can get to the Father without Christ? Judaism still believes that. But here it says it's through Him that you receive redemption and justification, being justified by His pardon that you do not deserve, because you have broken the law. All have sinned and come short of it. Therefore, it's His forgiveness and mercy that causes the Father to forgive you through His sacrifice. Now, when we do something that is not right, what do we do? We try to justify ourselves. Well, I did this because. I did this for that reason. Uh, it, was, it had to be okay because of the circumstances. So we try to find a way to justify whatever it is that we have done, whether it was kill millions of people or tell a white lie or whatever. Whoever it is is the human who perpetrated whatever it was. He tries to find a reason to absolve his conscience of any wrongdoing so he can still be comfortable no matter what he's done. So if he's murdered... He will try to find a way to justify that that person really should not be walking the earth and here's the reason I had to kill them. And by the time he gets to prison, he didn't do it. He's found a way to say, I didn't do that. He's justified it on his own. Does the sin remain in the eyes of God or in the eyes of the state with the lethal injection waiting? Yeah, it's still there. Whether that person justified it in his own mind or not, it's still there. And the only way, then, that our sin can be justified is through Him. Now, isn't that beautiful? Instead of me trying to, trying to convince myself that what I did was wrong, or wasn't wrong, Instead, I can get on my knees and say, Father, I sinned. I broke your law, whether by action or by thought. Please forgive me through the sacrifice of Christ for something that I do not deserve to be forgiven. I did this, and it hurt that one and that one and that one and that one. And there's no justification for that. I did it. I hurt people. Please forgive me. Now, David made that point, did he not? Now, he had sinned and it had hurt Uriah. Poor guy died. That hurt. He laid out on his porch because he sensed something was going wrong when he got invited to go home and visit his wife, and nobody else did. 
he knew there was some hanky-panky of someone kind happening. So, he got hurt. And then he got killed. Now, did David's sin impact Uriah? Oh, you bet it did. And it, infect, it, it affected Bathsheba. And it affected a lot of people who knew about what was going on and understood that Uriah had been killed on purpose. He got a couple, three days off, and then he got sent to the front line where he hadn't been before so that he'd get killed the next day. You think people didn't figure this out? And it hurt a lot of people in the nation? Yes, it did. But how did David pray in Psalm 51? Against you and you only have I sinned. It was God's law he broke in both the adultery and the murder and everything that went on. It was God's law, not man's law, that he was breaking. As a king, he could do anything he wanted. He could have people executed at his whim. Chop his head off. Okay, I'm the king. It's justified. person did bad. Whack. Now, he couldn't really justify killing Uriah and having taken his wife because Uriah had not broken some edict of the king kingdom uh, or of the king at all. So when David prayed, he says, I didn't sin against Uriah. I didn't sin against Bashima. I sinned against you. Now, our sins do affect other people, but it is the sin that is against God. And that has to be justified somehow, because it's God's law we broke. It wasn't the state speed law, it was God's law. So we don't answer to the traffic cop, we answer to God. But we can be justified freely through His grace, through the redemption. Christ can redeem us from sin. What do you do when you redeem something? You save it from death. You save it from uh, whatever was about to happen to it. They could redeem certain animals, even in the Old Testament law, that were going to be sacrificed. But if you paid a certain price, you could save that one and keep it, redeem it from death. So Christ is the chief shepherd who can redeem us from death that we richly deserve. And that redemption can come only through him because his life was worth more than all of ours, and therefore our sin can be covered by his blood instead of us having to die for our own sins he died for us, so our sins can be forgiven. So there's no other way except Him. Verse 25, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission or forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance, the patience, the mercy of God. This is, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or a Gentile, you've all sinned, and there's only one way that that is going to be covered so you don't have to answer for it, and that's through the blood of Christ. If you don't accept Him, 
there's no other way that your sins can be forgiven. So he says, everybody in the audience is going to die unless they turn and receive forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice. It's the only way. So he's saying to the whole audience, you better quit waste, you, you better quit worshiping the devil and start worshiping God and accepting the sacrifice of Christ. Isn't that the message that we're going to have to tell the world? You're worshiping the beast who worships Satan, and you're going to have to give that up and turn to Christ. If you don't, you're all going to die. And you know what? They're all going to die. Because they're not going to listen. Not all of them, but over 90% will die. Well, percent. Only 100 million left. That's all out of nearly 7 billion. Is this trial in the church at Rome? Very important message. And now it's a message that only a few understand, very few, on the earth today. And then that few is going to have to support a work that goes out and gives this message to the whole world who will then reject it and have to die. Now, if they would get on their knees, they could be saved. Now, what did Christ say? Every knee shall bow before me. If they won't bow it, they die. They come up in the second resurrection, and they're told, Now, are you going to get on your knees or not? I think I will. So, his sacrifice ultimately will be applied for them. They will repent, and they will be redeemed from their sin, but not until they have gone through some horrible things, including death, to humble them to the point that they will bend their knees willingly to Christ. And then we know that even then some of them won't. <clears throat> Doesn't Zechariah 14 tell us that? The whole world will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and worship the king. And if the Egyptian doesn't come up, and the Egyptian represents the Gentiles as a whole, sinful mankind... So it's not just he's not just picking on somebody who's Egyptian there, but it, it's a whole the whole world is concluded and sin is pictured by Egypt. So a lot of people, having died in the great tribulation and the seven last plagues, still will not accept the Father and the Son. Okay, didn't the two witnesses shut off their reign? Didn't they turn the water into blood? Didn't they do the plagues of Egypt on these people wherever they went and they would not accept the message just like ancient Egypt, Mithraim, did not accept the message and the whole nation was destroyed? This is going to be repeated. The whole world is going to be destroyed. And then those who are left standing this isn't talking about the second resurrection now. The ones who come during the millennium will be the ones who survived the seven last plagues. Not very many of them left. 
And they're the ones that are instructed to come up to Jerusalem to keep the feast right after Christ comes to the Mount of Olives and institutes His way. And having seen all this death and destruction and gone through famine and pestilence and seen their friends and their relatives all die, they're still going to say, I'm not going up and worship Jesus. He'll be Emmanuel then. And the Father who will be here. Okay. Just like the two witnesses did, we'll shut off the rain. When are you going to get the picture? Human nature is pretty stubborn. And Satan will even be bound at that time, right? For a thousand years. Beginning of the millennium, he won't even be around. This is just intransigent, deceitful, selfish human beings who still will not accept Christ. There'll be some Jews among them who still won't accept Christ. Or, including the Messianics, those who will accept the name but not the message of Christ. He's speaking pretty plainly here. It's only through faith in His blood. Now keep that in mind. Faith in His blood. What is faith? Faith is true belief. Faith is trust. Now there's dead faith, whereby you might acknowledge or give lip service to something, but you don't really believe it. Do you, to the core of your being, to the bottom of your emotions, believe that the dead will be resurrected? Do you believe that when you die, you will be resurrected? Now, based on human experience, I don't believe that. I've seen lots of dead animals. I've seen lots of dead people. And you know what? When they're dead, they're really dead. They don't speak. They don't think. They don't act. Their eyes glaze over. They turn cold. They begin to swell up and bloat and stink. And you better get rid of the body fast, be it animal or human, or it will pollute the air and create germs and plagues and kill other people. Dead is dead. There were religious groups in Christ's day who did not believe in the resurrection. I saw my mom. She was dead. I don't believe in the resurrection. She's dead. She began to stink. We got rid of her in a hurry. Do you really believe that there's a God in heaven that can take a stinking corpse out of a grave or some shark poop in the deepest of the Pacific somewhere and make a living being out of it again? That's what we're here for. If you don't believe that, you have no basis for anything in the future. You're just going to live, die, and that's the end of it.
eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If this life is all we have, then just do whatever you want, because it'll end and that's the end of it. That's what Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 15. If in this life only we have hope, then what's the point? Now, it's easy to say, oh yeah, God can resurrect. Yeah, okay, I can understand that concept. God is big. He made all this life around me. He can resurrect. But will He? Will He resurrect you and those that you loved who died? Is He going to do that? Can He do that? You know, you're dying as you're sitting there in that chair today. Some of you are a lot long, further along than others. But even the young ones are headed toward death. This girl back here who has a little baby about that long, it's dying. may take it quite a few years yet, but that's where it's headed. As soon as you draw a breath of life, you're on your way to dead. Now, do you believe something's going to be done about it? That's the point. It has to be faith in His blood that Him, being God, came to life on this earth, and shed his blood and died plumb dead. He knew nothing for three days. Nothing. He was inert, dead. And he lived. So you have to have not dead faith, but living faith. Something that is active. If you make bread and you don't put some active leavening agent of some kind in it, it will remain flat. You have to have something living go into it in order to activate it and make it rise. Now, the kingdom of heaven is equated by Christ to leavening. You can have this water and flour here, this human being, but unless you have the leavening of the Spirit of God, you do not become active, and you do not have the Spirit come throughout you in your entirety. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The Spirit of God has to pervade you all the way through. So the Spirit of God is likened to leavening. It is something that is alive and that produces something bigger and better and more palatable than what was before His Spirit entered into it. So leavening can be used in both a positive and a negative way. For seven days only in the springtime, flatbread represents what? Something that cannot rise on its own. Did you think about it that way? The only reason that it has a bad connotation is for seven days, which picture the time that Christ died, the Passover, and then six more days in which we continue to eat unleavened bread that cannot rise, because without Christ, we can't rise. 
So for the other, the rest of the year, every day, leavening represents something good, except for those seven. And he does us not eat the leavening for seven days to teach us that apart from the sacrifice of Christ and his leavening, we cannot become anything palatable. So he says, leavening has to go through you and leaven you throughout so that you can not only in type rise and become something that's better to eat than something that is flat and more tasteless. And not only that, it pictures the resurrection in which you rise from the earth through the power of the Spirit of the leavening agent of the universe, Christ Emmanuel. I don't think I'd ever thought of it in that term before, but that's exactly what it's saying. For seven days, you can do nothing. You can try to put sin out, but you already got sin, and without his blood, you're going to die. You'll remain flat, flat in the ground. But with the leavening of his spirit, you become a new loaf, a new man, and you can rise from the earth and be palatable for man and God. I've never heard that expressed before, but it fits. So there's your new doctrine, new teaching. Not new, not new at all. It just never occurred to me quite that way. But it was in there. It was in there all along. So without him, you're flat. And flat doesn't get it. Verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness. Now, these people had been proclaiming what? The Jews had been proclaiming their righteousness, right? That's what Christ had to deal with, was the unrighteous righteousness of the Jews. He had to tell them what they really were. And declare... His righteousness. Now, what did he tell us in Psalm, I mean, in Isaiah 64? All our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's all it is. The best righteousness a human being can muster is a menstruous cloth. That's what the Hebrew says. Not good for man or woman. Nobody. That's the best we can be on our own. That's living as good as you can live on this earth is going to gain you nothing but to be thrown away. Okay? Something is foul, we throw it away. So he says, all of your righteousness is totally flat. It won't gain you anything. You'll get thrown out. What do I do at the end of the seven days of unleavened bread? Do I joyously continue to eat flat bread for the next six weeks? No, I usually get rid of it fairly fast. we got a little bit left. Yeah, I'll go ahead and eat it for two or three days. But before long, I want something that is more palatable. So I go back to leavening. 
And it's not sin anymore. It represents the Spirit of Christ. So, it is to declare His righteousness, not ours. Doesn't He say there at the last, I think it's the last verse of Isaiah 54, that when He renews the church and gathers His people together, that He will give them His righteousness. Their righteousness shall be of me, not our own self-righteousness, which is the best you and I have ever been to muster, able to muster on our own. It is only through baptism and the receiving of His Holy Spirit that we have a little conception of the Spirit of God, and it is supposed to then go all through us and pervade our thinking and our actions so that we become righteous as He is righteous. But up to that point, we have always been trying to justify, we've been trying to do some good things so we could feel good about ourselves and hope that others felt good about us. And then where we did not do good, we found a way to try to justify our bad behavior. It was okay for me to steal that liquor because I needed to get drunk. Okay, that was all right. I just justified it. No. So we spent all our lives trying to make ourselves righteous. And it doesn't work. You can only be righteous through Him. So, Jew or Gentile, he says, I don't care what chair you're sitting in here as you read this letter, I'm going to declare to you the righteousness of Christ, not of yourselves. So you Jews, pack it up, fold your wings and put them in a box. Uh, we're going to talk about Christ here. And, and you others can fold Zeus up and put him in a box because Christ is the only one that matters. See how it's important to understand the context and who he's talking to in understanding what he says about the law and grace and so on a little later on. All right. To declare at this time his righteousness that he might be just. Just means in a um, good, favorable, acceptable position. Justice is supposed to come to give or put whoever had a crime perpetrated against them into a just and proper position. That someone would pay for what they had done to this individual, and therefore, even though you might not be able to remedy the hurt, at least you can punish the perp. Now, Christ and His righteousness make Him just or justified. Now, He did not have to be justified for anything He had done. He didn't have to tell Himself, well, you know, you, you, you goofed up, but you were just weak, or the temptation was so great. He never did anything wrong, and therefore He did not have to justify anything. The only thing He had to justify was your sins and mine. 
because we were going to have to die and pay for our own sin unless somebody could do something about it, and he's the only one that could. And this was figured out before the world was ever transformed into what it is today. Before the foundation, it was decided Christ would come and die because God, they knew the creating human beings, as they created them, they would sin. They knew what kind of mind they'd have because they designed it and created it. And they knew what Satan could do with that mind, as well as what it could do with itself. So this was all laid out ahead of time. That he might be just, and the justifier of him which believes in Christ, or Jesus, or Emmanuel. So we do not have to justify that which we do wrong. We have to go and get on our knees and ask for His justification. That He who was perfect had His blood shed that my sin might be wiped out. Because sin cannot be wiped out without blood. The wages of sin is death. And no matter how many good works you have done in life, it doesn't pay, they don't pay, the penalty for the sins you sinned. You could have all the good works and good deeds in the world, and one sin would still kill you. So, you can't be justified by works. You can only be justified by the blood of Christ. Therefore, you have to believe in that blood that your sin really is forgiven. And a lot of us have problems with that, don't we? People have things they did when they were 8, 14, 20, 30, 40 years old, 83 years old, whatever, that they still can't get past. It still holds them down and holds them back. Because they still feel the guilt for what they did. You know what? We're supposed to get past that. We should be able to come to the point we have a clear conscience and we don't have to worry about whatever it was we did in the past. People live in the past, so many of them. Even the psychologist Dr. Phil sees through that. He says, come out of your history and get into your life. Life is living. Now, isn't that what Christ tells us? Get away from your past and live your life for the future. Are you going to let your past and the guilt from it keep you from being what you ought to be today? There's nobody here who hasn't sinned. The baby's not here today, so she probably hasn't sinned yet. It won't be long. We all have baggage. We all have sins. Why do you carry them around? Why do you have a huge trailer load of sin attached to your rear end and you have to drag it with you through life? Christ said, through me, you can unhitch the trailer. My blood covers your sin. 
Now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. Do you have living faith in the sacrifice of Christ? Faith that is alive. If you're still dragging the trailer of sin around, you don't have living faith in Christ and His sacrifice. Now, does that put it in terms that we can grasp instead of a little technological argument about law or grace? We are justified through the blood of Christ and those who believe in His sacrifice. Not just Him as a name, but what He did. When you bring up your sins of the past to God or to other humans, you are denying the blood of Christ. You don't have faith that your sin has been forgiven. Now let's take that one more step further. If you bring up the sins of somebody else, whether it be from 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, or yesterday, you are denying the blood of Christ. You do not have living faith that Christ could forgive the sin of that person. Right? You do not know whether that person went to Christ and ask for forgiveness of the Father <coughs> last night. You don't know. You do not know the status of any other human being with God. All you were doing is saying to yourself and repeating to others what you think their status is. Your opinion of their status as a human being or a Christian. You know what your opinion is worth? Two bucks, in your opinion, might get you a cup of coffee most places still. And the two bucks has a whole lot more to do with it than your opinion did. Why does he say, do not condemn, do not judge, lest you be condemned and judged yourself? Because you have no right whatsoever to judge another man's servant. Those are the words of Christ. We are the servants of Christ. And you have no idea of the status of that person with God. You look at the law, you look at the standard, and you say, I think that person broke that. Maybe they did. You might have even seen them do it yesterday or a week or a year ago. You might have seen it with your own eyes or thought you did. But you don't know whether that person repented and the blood of Christ has covered that. And the blood of Christ, if it has covered it, should not be dug through to see if you can find sin. His blood was shed. It dripped out of him and onto the ground. 
and covered your sin and mine. And when you accuse yourself, or you accuse others of sin, you may be found to be digging through His blood, looking for sin when it has been justified and removed through His shed blood. That's why gossip is so wrong. It can be hurtful to people, but it is so wrong because you may be condemning someone whom Christ has forgiven. Do you think that there were people in David's kingdom who saw him kill Uriah and marry his wife and have children by him that still had a bad attitude about David for that? I expect there were quite a few. But they did not understand David's status in God's eyes because they had not been there when David prayed Psalm 51 or when he wrote it down. So they were what? They were being contrary to God. They had a totally different opinion of the status of David with God than what theirs was. Now that's scary. When you have a different status in mind for somebody than what God does, you're in trouble. Korah, Nathan, Abiram, they had a whole different view of the status of both Moses and themselves in God's eyes. They thought Moses was unqualified and that they could do a better job than him. So what they were saying is, God thinks more highly of us than he does Moses. You know what that got them? You know what that will get us? Don't go there. I thought about, maybe I'll take the time to do it. Sometime back, I was just thinking about circumstantial evidence. You're sitting at a parking lot, Safeway, wherever, and there's a little bar on the corner. Did I, did I say this one time? I, I think maybe I did, but here it might be good to review it. There's a little bar there, and you can see it from where you're parked, and uh, up drives this car, and this guy gets out. He's kind of in shambles, like, looks like a mess. He goes into that bar, and in a little while, he comes out. And he's kind of staggering. Looks like he had several doubles real fast. And he goes out, and he has trouble finding his car in the lot. He checks this one, he checks that one. They look alike. You know how cars are, they all look alike. Can't find his car. Didn't remember where he parked it. So you see him stagger around trying the key, and he finally figures out, oh, has to be this one. Yeah, that one opened up. About then, this young, good-looking girl comes out of the bar and goes to that car and gets in with him. And then they pull out, and they start down the street toward this huge apartment complex. And they kind of go out of sight as they kind of get in front of the apartment complex. 
You got this one figured out, right? This guy goes in the bar. He gets drunk. He talks this girl up. She comes out, gets in the car, and they go over to his apartment. Or her apartment, whichever. Pretty open and shut case, right? Now let's look at what this could have been. This guy pulls up the taxi in front of this bar. He's from New Jersey, and this is in Nevada. He gets out, and he goes in this bar because his sister works there. Now, she had called him and said, Our mother is about to die. If you want to see her alive, you need to get out here and get here quick. So he took an overnight red-eye flight, got there tired, went in, talked with his sister. Maybe he did have a beer or two. Who knows? And then he walks out. He's so tired by now he can barely stand up. And since he'd come in a taxi, and you didn't see it, you see him trying to get in his cars. Well, it's his sister's car. He doesn't know which car it is. So he has trouble finding it, and he's half asleep anyway. So his sisters had said, I'll be off in a few minutes. We're going to go to the hospital and see Mom. Now, where you were sitting, you could see these apartment complex. You didn't see that blue sign down at the corner that said hospital that way. So they both get in the car, they go down, they turn and go to the hospital to see mom who's about to die of cancer. Can you judge by circumstantial evidence? By what you thought you saw? It might be totally different than what you thought you saw. But you decide based on what you thought you saw... That those two are up to something. You figured that one out. That was pretty obvious. You were dead wrong. Now, analyze dead wrong. If we judge another man's servant, and we have a different view of them than God does, then we could die for that. Think about it. So he's telling this whole audience, it's the righteousness of Christ that matters. Not yours, not mine. And his blood can forgive everybody's sin, and we've all done it. And if it's forgiven, walk away from it. Don't continue in sin for whatever reason, or that grace may abound, as he says later in another statement. Get away from it. Why roll in it for the rest of your life? Yours or somebody else's. If it comes under the blood of Christ, it's gone. Doesn't he say, if you're in that first resurrection, your sin will never again be mentioned to you. Do we grasp that? Our judgment is now, brethren. We are to be first fruits. When Christ returns, we will not sit in a judgment. Do we get that? If we're dead in Christ, we will rise in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. If we're still alive and remain, we'll be a split second later. No judgment. Changed. 
Spirit. Just like that. Because our judgment will have been completed by then. Either at the time we died, or at the time we're changed if we're still alive and remain. The judgment is yes, you're a first fruit. Now, if he had you as a candidate to be a first fruit, and you didn't make it, you won't be in that resurrection. You'll be in the third resurrection. And your judgment will already have been made then. You will have either been in the first, or you'll be lined up for the third. Judgment already done. Your sins won't even have to be mentioned. You come up, and you see that fire, and you're about to be kicked in it. Hey, no time to justify. No time to say, yeah, but. No, that's it. Now, others will be judged in the millennium over a period of a lifetime, or the great white throne judgment is the same. Just like we are now. Judgment is now on the house of God. So you don't have to face Christ and say, sheep, goat, sheep, goat. That doesn't apply to us at all. We'll either be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, or we won't. Because our sin is already wiped away. It is justified in the blood of Christ, not in our little mind trying to find an excuse for what we did. It's simple. Go to Him, honestly, sincerely, ask for forgiveness, and do all you can not to repeat that sin again. But if you do, keep repenting, because He's willing to forgive you 70 times 7. That's His standard. How many times are you willing to forgive somebody something you saw them do? Not even once. Much of the time. Not even once. I saw that. That person did that. That wasn't his sister. You kidding me? They went to the apartment. No room in you for forgiveness and mercy. God is mercy. His mercy endures forever. How long does yours last? Till they got around the corner? Huh? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Faith that Christ's blood covers your sin and everybody else's sin, and we no longer need to worry about them. It, that should be a relief that I don't have to worry about my sins, and I don't have to worry about your sins. I go to God and repent. you got to go to God and repent. We're all justified in the blood of Christ. What's the problem? Let's stop there.